All right. How's everyone doing? Fantastic. Andre's doing fantastic. Great. Everybody. And Josiah's doing great. Huh? You got to speak English. I don't, I don't do that. Sorry. Well, cool. I am very excited to be back on Wednesday nights. Certainly very excited to be here speaking to y'all. Um, we are going to be starting tonight a, a two-week series titled, I See That Hand. And uh, some of you may be looking at that wondering, what's with that series title? Well, I'll tell you that in just a minute. Uh, but we're going to be looking at uh, this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? So let me ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Anybody can answer. Adults, you can feel free to answer as well. Casey? Uh, to follow Christ. To follow Christ, okay. Is that it? Anybody agree or disagree? No, I'm To be someone chosen by God, okay. What do y'all think? Yes or no? Agree or disagree? Man, y'all are quiet this evening. Josh? To me, to raise your hand. And to raise your hand like in, in a... In a uh, you tell, you tell me. I'm the one ask, I'm asking you the question. I see that hand. Is that what it yeah. I mean, do y'all agree, disagree? What do you think? No, disagree. All right, hey, Joe said to ask Jesus in your heart. Is that, is that what it means to be a Christian? Let me ask you, does the Bible say anything about asking Jesus into your heart? No. It doesn't. Well, cool. Well, so this series is titled, I See That Hand, and the series title comes from a, you can go back real quick. The series title comes from a typical occurrence that happens in most evangelical churches throughout the United States. Some of you may be familiar with a scene like this. Some of you may not. Certainly, if your only church experience has been here at North Clay Baptist Church, you will not be familiar with a scene like this. Praise God. But the scene typically goes something like this. There will be some sort of service, and it will be... Uh, awesome. There'll be a kicking band that plays. They'll play some games. Maybe they'll give away an Apple Watch and some concert tickets. And at some point during the service, there will be a teacher, preacher, TED Talker, wannabe stand-up comic who gets up and gives some sort of message for about 20 or 30 minutes. And at the end of that message, he's going to give some sort of invitation. He's going he, to give some sort of invitation for people to come and become Christians. And it'll usually, uh, the, the scene will so, go something like this. He'll usually ask everybody, okay, I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads and to close their eyes. And he'll say something along the lines of, you know, if you're not a Christian tonight, but you want to be, just pray this prayer after me. And then he'll lead them in this prayer of salvation. And then when he's done, he'll say something along these lines. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, that means you're now a Christian. That means you're now a new creation. And if that's something, a decision that you made tonight, if you prayed that prayer tonight, I just want to ask you just to raise your hand. With everybody's head bowed and everybody's eyes closed, I just want you to raise your hand. Right? Yeah, yeah. Nobody looking around, no looking at your neighbor. But, but, but if you prayed that prayer tonight, I just want you to raise your hand. And here's the thing. Regardless of whether or not anyone raises their hands, they'll usually start pointing people out and say, awesome, yeah, you in the back there, I see that hand. Right? And then slowly but surely, after he starts, you know, pointing some fake people out, saying that fake people raise their hands, inevitably somebody will eventually raise their hands. Now, the reason I know that nobody raised their hands is because I'm one of those people that looked around, you know. Sometimes it was because I just wanted to. I was curious. Quite frankly, I think if you become a Christian, that's a big deal, and that we should all know, and we should all encourage that person. But sometimes it was because I was playing music on stage, and I had to have my eyes open so I could see where I was going. So I just happened to see, nobody's raising their hand, and yet he's, he's pointing to the back saying, you there in the back, I see that hand. And so anyways, you know, some of you might appreciate my cynicism, some of you may, may not, but at any rate, I think it makes for a great series title, so in any case, we're going to have a lot of fun here tonight. But these sort of scenarios, like I said, this is a pretty typical occurrence in most modern evangelical churches here in the United States. And certainly if you go and you visit other churches, you know, students, soon you'll be graduating, you'll be going to college, you might, you might stumble upon a scene like this. And these sorts of scenarios raise very important questions. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Does simply raising your hand at the end of a service, I see that hand, is that what makes you a Christian? No? 
Does simply praying a prayer after somebody else, just repeating some words, is that what makes you a Christian? Right? Because, I, I mean, enough, I, 100%, like I've heard this language used. They say if you pray that prayer, you're a new creation. Now, that raises, like I said, it raises an important question. So you're saying I was something, then I prayed a prayer, and afterwards I was something else. Is, is that what happened? Is that all it took was simply to repeat some words or to raise your hand? Some people think you become a Christian simply by going to church. Does just going to church make you a Christian? Some people think it makes you a Christian if you quit smoking cigarettes or you don't have sex outside of marriage or you do X, Y, or Z. That's what makes you a Christian. But is that what it is? Is it, I'm one way, I do something or I don't do something, and now I'm a new creation. Is, is, that, is that what it is? Is that what it takes? Is that what happens? You see, methods like this work really well for stirring people's emotions. You know, usually, uh, you know, when, when they start praying these prayers and they start, you know, hey, I see that hand, you know, the music will start to swell and, you know, your heart will just be pulled just the right way because of those minor chords and it just sounds so awesome and you just are so caught up in the moment. But as soon as you start to ask some serious questions, the whole thing falls apart. So you're saying now I'm a Christian, you're saying now I'm a new creation, but what actually changed? And nobody wants to answer that question. People who advocate these sort of methods don't want to answer those kinds of questions. So let me ask you one more time. What does it mean to be a Christian? To actively follow and live for Christ. To actively follow and live for Christ. Okay. Agree or disagree? Anybody? Casey agrees. Anybody disagree? So here's the thing, when we're asking this question, right, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's important to recognize that we have to answer this question from basically two different perspectives. Or in other words, we can ask this question in two different ways. And those two different ways are what I'm calling the essential question and the evidential question, okay? The es essential question and the evidential questions. In other words, what does it mean to be a Christian in essence, right? And then what is a Christian, what are the evidences that someone is a Christian, right? We have to look at these things from basically two different perspectives. When it comes to the essential question, right, we're asking what is a, a Christian in essence, right? What does it mean to be a Christian in essence? Or what is a Christian's nature? Or what is their ontology, right? We've talked about ontology before in this room. It's basically that it has to do with being, right? All cows have four legs, but not everything with four legs is a cow, right? So what actually makes a cow a cow? That's an ontological question. There is an ontological reality to being a Christian. Or should I say, is there an ontological reality to being a Christian? That's, the, that, that's what we're trying to get at when we're asking this essential question. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight is the essential question. But the other, other perspective is the evidential question, right? We're talking about basically what a Christian looks like or what are the evidences that someone is a Christian. So again, all cows have four legs, but not everything with four legs is a cow, right? So there's something ontologically speaking on the essential level. Once we get down to its very being and its very nature, that makes it a cow. But there's some other things we could look at to identify the cow, right? It looks a certain way. It's out in the field. It's eating grass. It's mooing. Right? We can say, oh, that's a cow, and that's not a horse because it's eating grass and it's mooing. Right? There's some evidences we can look at to determine what a Christian or, or, or what, is, what it means to be a Christian. Another way to think about it, right? if we have an apple tree and an orange tree, right? there's something in the DNA of that tree that makes it an apple tree versus an orange tree. But we can also look at the tree itself and determine what it is by what it does. And what does an apple tree do? It produces apples, exactly. So an apple tree produces apples, we can rightly identify an apple tree by the evidence, by what it does, okay? And that's what we're gonna be looking at next week. So we have to realize we're approaching this question from two different angles, right? We're basically asking, in this one question, we're asking two different questions. With the essential question, we're asking what a Christian is. That's what we're trying to get at, what a Christian is. With the evidential question, we're trying to get at what a Christian does, or what a Christian looks like. So tonight, we're going to be looking at this essential question. 
What does it mean to be a Christian on the ontological or essential level? All right, so I've asked you a couple times, what does it mean to be a Christian? But now that you kind of understand how we're approaching this question from these two different angles, and you recognize that tonight we're talking about this essential question, what do you think it means to be a Christian on the essential level or on the ontological level? Anybody? Adults, you can feel free to answer as well. I would encourage it. If we're asking the essential question, what a Christian is, what does it mean to be a Christian? A believer in Christ? Is that an ontological? Is that something ontological? Is that something essential that gets down to the very nature of who you are? It's not, right? That's something you do, right? You believe. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? Someone who's been saved from their sins? Agree or disagree? Anybody? Agree? So this question, right, we have to, we have to recognize we're, we're answering it from two different perspectives, and we're really trying to get down to the root of what a Christian is, right? An apple tree produces apples, but there's a reason it produces apples, right? It's not an apple tree because it produces apples. It produces apples because it's an apple tree, Right? Christians do particular things because they are Christians. It's not that by doing these particular things you become a Christian. And so tonight we're going to be looking at our, our primary text, which is going to be our primary text for this series. And that's going to be Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. If you've got a, a study guide, it's going to be on top of that study guide. And what I'm going to ask is that, uh, I'm going to ask that we all say this, uh, read this passage together out loud. Uh, I think that doing that is a really great way to commit uh, Scripture to memory, to actually say it out loud. I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes to memorize Scripture, and saying it out loud kind of helps with that, right? You think you, do, you, you, think you know it until you have to say it out loud. And so getting the repetition of saying things out loud, I think, is a great way um, to go through it. So you can read it up here on the screens, or you can look at your study guide. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Let's go ahead and read all of that together, and I need you all, to, everybody to participate, okay? Will you all do that for me? Great. All right, so let's read it together. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Awesome. I know it's a little awkward, kind of all speaking in unison like that, but like I said, it's a good way to memorize Scripture, to say it out loud. And so when we're, when we're looking at this text, what we have to recognize is that the prophet Ezekiel is, is seeing a vision. God has given the prophet Ezekiel a vision of the new covenant. One of the uh, downfalls of the old covenant is that it made demands on the people of Israel that they could not keep, right? God gave them his law. He said, you need to obey my law, and if you obey my law, I will be your God, and you will be my people. But they were not able to obey his law. They couldn't do it apart from the grace of God. And one of the major differences we see between the old covenant and the new covenant is that the new covenant also makes demands on its members, but it also gives its members the means to fulfill those demands, namely through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so God has given Ezekiel this vision. And what Ezekiel sees is that God is going to take out this heart of stone, this dead heart, and he's going to give them living hearts. And he's going to cause them to walk according to his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. And so in this text, we actually see the answers to both the essential question and the evidential question, right? We see the answers to the essential question, the ontological question, and we also see the answers to the evidential question. And so if we're asking the essential question, right, the answer to the essential question is this, right? What does it mean to be a Christian? A Christian is one who has been given a new heart, who has been given God's spirit and a new heart, okay? When we're asking the essential question, right, what a Christian is, a Christian is one who has God's spirit and a new heart. And that comes straight out of the text that we just read, 
if you go ahead and go to the next slide, I've kind of highlighted and underlined a few things for you in this text, right? We see, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so the Christian is one that has been given God's spirit and a new heart. And there's two primary things that we are going to, uh, uh, basically two truths that we're going to be pulling out from this fact. And the first one is that this, this change is an objective ontological reality. It's an objective ontological reality. Now, what does that mean, right? Well, if we're talking about something being objectively true, right, we're saying that the truth of the matter is not determined by the subject, but it's determined from outside the subject, right? Uh, for instance, right, it is objectively true that the sky is blue, right? I mean, if you want to get into the science and like, well, technically it's not actually blue, it's the way the light passes through the atmosphere. All right, for the sake of argument, the sky is objectively blue, right? It's objectively true that the sky is blue. Now, let's say I'm colorblind, right? Let's say that I'm colorblind, and when I look at the sky, all I see is gray. And when I look at your faces, what I see is gray. When I look at my sweater, what I also see is gray. Does my individual experience change the objective nature of the sky's color? No. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about this being an objective reality. It's that it's not determined by the subject, right? Another way to think of this, right? If we had, let's say, um, uh, like an Auburn fan and an Alabama fan, right? There's not really an objective difference between the two, right? I mean, I guess you could say that one has a higher IQ than the other, and I'll let y'all fight about who's who. But, right, there's not an objective difference between the two parties, right? If we were to strip away all of the externals, there's not an objective difference, right? One cheers for one team because of a decision that they've named. It's subjective. It's something they've determined themselves, right? And the other cheers for a different team because of a subjective choice that they made themselves. So being a Christian is an objective reality. It's not something that you determine yourself. It's not based on your feelings or your experience or your perspective. It's something that's objectively true. Not only is it objectively true, but it's, on, it's an ontological reality. Now again, we've already talked about ontology several times. Ontology has to do with the study of being, right? Like I said, all cows have four legs, but not everything that has four legs is a cow, right? So there's something, there's something on the ontological or essential level, on the level of its nature that makes it a cow, that distinguishes it from other four-legged creatures, right? If I started walking on all four legs and eating grass and mooing, does that make me a cow? Ontologically speaking, well, no. It just makes me an idiot, I guess. But when we're saying that this is an objective ontological reality, this is something that is objectively true, and it's true on the ontological level. Right? We saw it in our text. The Christian, the believer, the new covenant member has been given a new heart. So, like I said, you put the, the Auburn fan and the Alabama fan next to each other, you strip away all the externals. Ontologically speaking, what's the difference? There is none, right? But you put the Christian and the non-Christian, you put the new covenant member and someone who's outside of the new covenant, you put the believer and the unbeliever next to each other and you strip away all of the externals, there's an objective ontological difference between the two. One has a heart of stone, and the other has a heart of flesh. One is still dead in their trespasses and sins, and one has been raised to walk in newness of life. There's an objective ontological difference between these two groups of people. Being a Christian is an objective ontological reality. We saw that confirmed in our text. And now we're going to actually look at other passages of Scripture that illustrate this truth. You can go ahead and go to the next slide. So I've got our, our primary text up there just to illustrate that this is pulled straight from our primary text in Ezekiel. But let me get somebody to look up John 3, 3 through 8. Okay, Casey? Let me get somebody to look up John 10, 25 through 28. Aiden? Let me get someone to look up uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Let me get someone to look up Ephesians 2, 3 through 6. Josiah? 
First uh, Peter one three, uh, and then First Peter one twenty three. You can take that one. All right. So we've already seen from our passage in Ezekiel, right? The believer, the Christian, has a new heart, and they have God's Spirit. There's something objectively and ontologically true about their nature that separates them from non-believers. Uh, who had John three? All right, go ahead and read that for us, Casey. Awesome. So in this section of scripture, right, Nicodemus is approaching Jesus and he's, and he's inquiring about some of the things that Jesus has been teaching on. And one of the things that Jesus tells him is that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, when the New Testament speaks about this reality, this vision that Ezekiel saw, it speaks about it in these terms. It speaks about it in a few different ways as well. And there's a, there's a big theological term, a big five-letter word that starts with the letter R that also speaks to this reality. Can anybody tell me what it is? Right? Being born again. Does anybody know what the big... Huh? Not repentance. No? Oh, come on. Hey, regeneration. That's it. Right. Yeah. So when we're talking about regeneration, right? When we're talking about the new birth, we're talking about what Ezekiel saw. We're talking about being given a new heart. Having God's spirit put within you. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you are not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Something has to be objectively, ontologically true about you before you can see the kingdom of God. Namely, you have to be born again. You have to be given a new heart in God's spirit. And at the end there in verse 8, he says, the wind blows and, uh, where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. This is something that, that, that God does that we can't really put our finger on. We can see the evidence, right? We can hear it sound. But we don't know where it's coming from. We don't know where it's going. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you have been given God's spirit and a new heart, you're not a Christian. That's the reality. All right, who had John 10, 25 through 28? Go ahead and read that one for us. Awesome. So in this section of scripture, right, Jesus is talking to some of the people who have been listening to him. And basically what he tells them, right, he says, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Right? He says, you're not one of my sheep, and that's why you don't believe. Right? He doesn't say you're, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, but the reason you don't believe is because you're not of my sheep. Right? There's something they're doing or there's something they're not doing that's determined by what they are. That's determined by their nature, by their essence. And he goes on a little bit later and he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. As uh, Charles Spurgeon says, it's, it, it should be impossible to, real, to like recognize that we're not alive. Some people think, like, it's, how do we know if we've been saved or how we've not been saved? But, well, if you're alive, right, if you're no longer dead but you've been raised to walk in newness of life, it should be impossible to, know any, to, to, like not, to have any doubt about it. You should be absolutely certain that you are alive. And Jesus says, he gives them eternal life. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
there's something that separates those who believe and those who do not believe. Namely, that some are Christ's sheep and some are not. Right? Some are part of his fold, some are not. Some have been born again, some have not. Some have been given a new heart and God's spirit, and some have not. And I love what he says there at the end, is that, is that he gives them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I don't know about y'all, but that, that gives me a lot of comfort, and that gives me a lot of assurance that those that Jesus saves, he actually can save. And there's nothing that anyone can do to change that. That's a pretty incredible thing. All right, who had 2 Corinthians 5.17? Go ahead. Awesome. So again, like I mentioned earlier, right, in some of these scenes that happen at just, in just about every church on every corner in the United States, right, they say if you pray to prayer, you're a new creation, right? That's biblical language. The Bible says that. The Bible says you'll be a new creation. But is it talking about you being a new creation after praying prayer? Or after raising your hand? I see that hand. Right? But what does the Apostle Paul say? He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Right? There's an objective ontological difference that has taken place. Right? You're a non-believer. You're in Christ. Objective ontological change takes place. The old has passed away and the new has come. You are a new creation if you are in Christ. All right, who had Ephesians 2, 3 through 6? Go ahead and read that for us. Awesome. So this section of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, to me is the best, most concise explanation of what the gospel is. If you're going to spend any time memorizing some scripture, this would be one of the sections I'd take you to. And I'd say, memorize Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But in this section, right, we see that there's an objective ontological reality. There's a change that takes place right there in verse 4. Right? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, right? You were one way. In trespasses and sins, he made us alive. There's a change that takes place. And it's an objective change. It's like moving from death to life. It's an ontological change. One is dead and one is alive. And he tells us that by grace we've been saved. Being a Christian is an objective ontological reality. This isn't something that's determined by our feelings, right? It's not like simply deciding to cheer for a particular sports team, right? What makes me a fan? Well, it's something I do. It's the way I feel about it. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is an objective, ontological reality. It means you've been made alive in Christ. It means you've been given a new heart in God's spirit. It means that you are one of God's sheep. It means you have been born again. You're a new creation. All right, who had 1 Peter 1, 3? Go ahead and read that for us. Praise to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to, according to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into the living hope through the restoration of Jesus Christ from the dead. Awesome. Again, according to the great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Right? It doesn't say that he caused us to do something. It doesn't say that he caused us to feel a certain way. No, he caused us to be born again. What God did was an objective ontological reality. Something changed about the Christian when they became a believer, when they became saved. 
They have been born again. And lastly, who had 1 Peter 1, 23? All right, go ahead and read that for us. Awesome. Again, just a few sections later, right? He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. So we see, not only from our primary text, right, in Ezekiel, being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, right, being a believer, being part of this new covenant is an objective ontological reality. There's something objectively and ontologically that distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. It's not simply a matter of feeling. You can't feel your way into Christianity. You can't simply raise your hand, I see that hand, and become a Christian. That's not how it works. Something has to objectively be changed in you, and that change has to be on the ontological level, on the level of your very being, on the level of your very nature. So that's the first thing we recognize. What does it mean to be a Christian? When we ask this essential question, being a Christian is an objective ontological reality. But not only that, this objective ontological change is something that God brings about. It's something that God does. This is not something that can be brought about by man's hands. Like I said, it's not something that we can feel our way into or simply make a decision or simply, you know, raise your hand, I see that hand, and become a Christian. Right? This is something that God does. And we see that, right, in our answer to the question. What does it mean to be a Christian on the essential level? Well, a Christian is one who has been given, right? Has been given a new heart. Not someone who gets a new heart. Not someone who accepts or receives a new heart. But someone who has been given a new heart. If you don't take away anything else from tonight, what you need to recognize is that becoming a Christian is something God does. This is not something that we do. This is something that God does. You can go ahead and go to that next slide for me. Again, from our text, we see it, right? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I, God speaking, will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is something God does. God makes Christians. God makes believers. This is not something you can do. This is not something I can do for you as much as I'd like to because it'd be much simpler that way, wouldn't it? Right? If I could just Say a few words, you know, maybe I do like an Expelliarmus or, you know, Harry Potter type thing, and just like, boom, now all of a sudden you're a new Christian, right? That'd be so much easier. But that's not how it works. Being a Christian is something God does. And again, we got another big $5 word here, monergism, right? It simply means that it's done by one person, right? That's opposed to like synergism. Right? Synergism is two different things working together to achieve one goal. Salvation is not a synergistic work. This is not something we cooperate with God in. This is something God does all on his own. Again, go, 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 back, uh, go back a couple slides for me. Right? It, it says, I will put a new heart within you, and I uh, will give you a new heart, and I will remove the heart of stone. Does it say, I will give you a new heart, and you will accept that new heart? Right? What do you do in this text? What does it say you do? It says you do nothing. You are passive throughout this whole process. God is the only one who's acting. It's not you. It doesn't say, I will give you a new heart and you raise your hand. I see that hand. Right? No, it doesn't say that. It just says that this is something that God is going to do. You go ahead and go back to where we were. And again, we see it in our text, right, in Ezekiel, but we also see it in several other places in the scriptures. So let me get somebody to look up Genesis 15, 12 through 7. Let's get some other folks who haven't looked up anything for us. Brad, 
You'll get uh, Genesis 15, 12 through 17. Uh, let me get someone to look up John 6, 65. Kaylee, thank you. Uh, Romans 9, 16. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 17 through 18. Josh? Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And James 1, 18. All right, awesome. Brad, go ahead and read for us Genesis 15, 12 through 7. All right, so in this section, right, God is entering into a covenant with Abraham. And one of the practices uh, in these ancient covenants is they would split animals in half, and they would separate the halves. And we, if you actually go back in chapter 15, you can read Abraham doing this. And essentially what they would do is they would cut these animals in half, and they would split the halves, and then the parties entering into this covenant would walk through the split pieces of these animals as a way of sort of symbolizing May what, happens, may what happened to this animal happen to me if I violate this covenant. And so entering into a covenant was a serious thing. Certainly entering into a covenant with Almighty God would be an even more serious thing. But what do we see that happens, right? When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch went between the pieces. Abraham didn't walk through those pieces. But God represented in the smoke and in the fire walked through these pieces. Essentially saying, I am going to take upon myself the demands of this covenant. Regardless of what you do, I am going to take upon myself the responsibility of upholding this covenant. God's covenant with Abraham was monergistic. It was something that God was doing. Abraham was passive. Abraham really was just there, if you want to be honest. But it was something that God did on his own. Abraham didn't walk through those pieces. Only God did. So not only was God committing, right? I'm going to uphold this covenant. But he was also saying, I'm going to take upon myself the punishments for violation of this covenant. For Abraham's violation of this covenant. It's a serious thing. And in, and in a lot of ways, this prefigures our salvation. Right? How, how are Christians saved this should be i mean this is an easy question how are christians saved jesus right yeah jesus paying the penalty on the cross what was he doing who were the sinners that deserved punishment who were the sinners that violated god's holy law we were all of mankind was well what did god do he took upon himself the iniquity of us all Being a Christian, becoming a Christian is something God does. And that's the way it's been since the fall of mankind. All right, who had John 6, uh, 65? Go ahead and read that one for us. Awesome. So another great section of, of uh, the uh, Gospel of John. And in this section, God is having this exchange with some people. And this is kind of the culmination of that. He says, he says, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So there's a logical order to the steps that have to, be, that have to take place, right? We come to Jesus, right? And we flee to him. But what has to take place before that can happen? Right? You have to be given by the Father. Right? God has to do something before you'll come to Jesus. And the reason you don't come to Jesus is because that, that thing that God has to do hasn't been done. Salvation is a monergistic work. It's something God does. You cannot, get, you cannot make yourself alive, can you? Have we seen anybody, any dead person, raise themselves to life? It doesn't happen. 
Dead people can't do those things. Spiritually dead people can't do those things. God has to do something. And we see that from the very mouth of Jesus. All right, who had Romans 9, 16? Go ahead. Awesome. Again, another fascinating section of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is really kind of the first like systematic breakdown of what the gospel is, right? We see the gospel preached about. We see Jesus proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom. But it's not really until the book of Romans that we really see like it broken down and we get to see sort of the mechanics of how exactly it works. And in Romans chapter 9, right, Paul is really emphasizing the fact that this is God's choice, that this is like a display. Of, salvation is a display of God's sovereignty. It's not something we do. It's not something we can bring about. As we saw in that verse, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. God is the one who makes Christians. God is the one who gives new hearts. God is the one who raises people from death to life. All right, who had 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 17 and 18? Go ahead, Josh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Again, right, we talked about this. Right, this language of new creation that people use when they raise a hand at the end of the service. I see that hand. Right? They say you're now a new creation. But that's not what makes you a new creation. If they just kept reading, like one more verse, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Not all this was from you raising your hand. I see that hand. Are you praying a prayer? Are you doing a few, you know, doing a, a few rituals? All this is from God. God is the one who does this. Not man. Not us. We can't do it for ourselves and we can't do it for anyone else. God has to do this. All right, who had Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? Go ahead and read that for us. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Oh, was there more? Go ahead. Keep going. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Almost like a song we've heard maybe earlier tonight, right? We are saved, right? It's biblical. Like I said, this, this section of Ephesians really just hits at what the gospel is. And this is kind of the bow that Paul's tying on the end of this section, right? He says... For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, this subjective ontological change that has to take place is something God does. This is not something man does. It's not the result of works, but it is a gift of God. All right, and lastly, James 1.18. Who had that one? Awesome. Again, here in James, of his, right, speaking of God, of his own will, he brought us forth, right? He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. By his own will, right? Not by raising your hand. I see that hand, right? Not by simply praying a prayer, not by simply doing certain things. Of his own will, he brought us forth from our deadness and sin, to being alive. By his own will, he caused us to be born again. 
by his own will, he gives us new hearts and places his spirit within us. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Right, when we're asking the essential question, right, we see that becoming a Christian is an objective ontological reality that is brought about by God and by God alone. This is not something you can conjure up on yourself. This is not something that you can get by just the right chord progression that just pulls on your emotions just right. If we just had enough haze and maybe the lights were at just the right level, maybe we could make somebody a Christian. But being a Christian is an objective ontological reality that is brought about by the hand of God. Now I know some of you have been coming here for a very long time, some longer than others. And some of you have been operating under this assumption that because you simply come on Wednesday nights or because you simply come on Sunday mornings, that makes you a Christian. But that's not what makes you a Christian. Right? Being a Christian means you have God's Spirit. You have been given God's Spirit. And you have been given a new heart. And if we just thought, sat and thought about it for a minute, right? We have hearts of stone. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We have a sinful nature. If we just sat and like thought about it for five minutes, can you really change your nature? Can you give yourself a new heart? Can you raise yourself from deadness and sin? We can't. God has to do it. And on the front end, this should honestly cause every single one of us, from the youngest person here to the oldest person here, this should cause us to despair because this is something we cannot do. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves Christians. But God. But God can. And God does. And God's been doing it since man's fallen into sin. Since the Garden of Eden. And if you're relying on your works, you're relying on your church attendance, right? You're relying on raising a hand at the end of a service. I see that hand. Right? Or maybe you walked an aisle. Right? That also could have been a pretty appropriate title for this series, right? I walked an aisle. Right? If you're thinking, well, because I walked an aisle, that's what makes me a Christian. That's not what makes you a Christian. Being a Christian means you have been given God's spirit and you have been given a new heart. And if you're relying on anything but the mercy and the grace of God for salvation, you're doomed. You're already condemned. And my hope and my prayer for each one of you is that you would seriously grapple with your own salvation. We're told to make our calling and election sure. We're told to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And because from our own experiences, because of what we see in most American evangelical churches, we've been given a, a, like a pot of garbage. And we think that, well, I prayed the prayer. I should be a Christian, right? I raised my hand. I see that hand. I'm a Christian, right? We've never thought to ask the question, have I been born again? Have I been given God's spirit? Have I been given a heart of flesh? Have I been raised from my deadness and sin? And so my prayer is that you would examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith and that you would rely on nothing but the mercy and the grace of God. He is mighty to save and he does save. As Jesus said, he's going to give his sheep eternal life no one can snatch them out of his hands. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. And nothing can change that. But we need to examine ourselves.
Let's pray together real quick. Joe's going to come up and he's going to lead us in another song. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is a sure foundation upon which we can build our lives. Lord, that it's trustworthy, that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will by no means pass away. We thank you for that truth. We thank you that the testimony of your scriptures, Lord, it's trustworthy. We can believe it. We can know it's true. And Lord, we thank you that you have been in the business of saving sinners, of raising sinners from their deadness and sin. Lord, all of us are unworthy. In fact, not only do we not measure up, not only are we unworthy, Lord, but we are actually worthy of condemnation and death. To suffer your wrath for eternity because we have sinned against the holy and eternal God. Lord, but we thank you that in this new covenant, Lord, this covenant of grace that you have made with your people, Lord, we thank you that you give us new hearts. Lord, that you put your spirit within us. That you take out our hearts of stone and you give us hearts of flesh. That you cause us to be born again. That you raise us from our deadness and sin. So that we may walk in newness of life. And Lord, I pray that for each and every one of these students. Lord, I pray that if they have not examined themselves to see whether they are in the faith, Lord, if they have not asked the question, have I been born again? Am I truly saved? Am I truly a Christian? Lord, that you would begin to work in their lives. Lord, that you would raise them, that you give them new hearts and cause them to be born again. Lord, we thank you that it depends not on human will, Lord, but that it is a gift from you. We praise you and we thank you for all these things. And it's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.